The Gospel according to St. Mark, the, the third chapter. Glory to you, Lord. Then Jesus' mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers and your sisters are outside asking for you. And Jesus replied, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Jesus Christ. You may be seated. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So unlike the president, I don't get to have a lot of perfect conversations with people. But what I do get to have on a regular basis as a chaplain for hospice are deep spiritual conversations with people who have never set foot in a church. And I remember one of them from a few years ago distinctly. It was after a young man, a recent college graduate, had lost his father and he reached out looking for someone to speak with about his struggle. We talked about his relationship with his father, his worried hopes that the doctors had done everything that they could to help him, and how he felt during his father's final days and in the weeks immediately following the death. But then, not because of me, the conversation turned to religion. I want you to know this. This is a really good teaching point. When you're talking to someone about grief, never bring up religion. And you shouldn't ever talk about it unless they bring it up with you. That's their spiritual journey. It's not yours. PSA over. He shared with me, but I, I was stuck. I had to do this because he brought it up with me. He shared with me that his biggest struggle was wondering what had happened to his father. He shared that he'd not been brought up religious and described himself previously as a committed agnostic. But as he was going through all the sadness and yearning and longing that so often marks people's grief, he confessed to me that his heart was torn. I really want to believe. I mean, I want to believe that my dad is living on. I want to believe he's looking down on me. I want to believe I'll see him again. I want nothing more than to have faith right now. Now, my training in seminary told me that what I should do right now is witness to him, proclaim Jesus to him. But I did not. The Holy Spirit instead, who is a better preacher than I am, stopped me from the long sermon I was about to give. And all the Holy Spirit gave for me to say was, you don't need to reach to, for faith. And what you've told me, it's pretty clear you already have it. Ruth shows us the same things about faith that I learned from that honest and insightful man those years ago. From Ruth and Naomi, for those of you taking notes, we learn two absolutely vital things. First, faith is nothing less than what you cling to. What you are stuck to is what you have faith in. Second, 
That faith is not a suspension of disbelief. It is not mental gymnastics. It is not something that is at variance with science. And it is not a leap in the dark. Sorry, Soren. Faith always has a face on it. So remember these things. Faith is what you cling to. And faith has a face on it. To talk about the Bible a little bit. So those of you who need to balance your checkbook or go to sleep, this is the time. But for the rest of you who might be interested, Ruth takes place in the time of the judges. Now, if you've been following the last couple of weeks, we've heard about the Israelites being liberated from Egypt, journeying through the wilderness, and receiving the law. And after entering the promised land, the Israelites settled down and they were divided up into 12 tribes. There was no king, but still Israel remained surrounded by enemies. So the judges were these figures and think Judge Dredd, not Judge Wapner. They were not most of the time not hearing court cases. Right, these military figures who would rise up in times of invasion or crisis and they would fight enemies off. There's a whole book about it right before Ruth. Those of you who are fans of Samson, Samson's in there. Gideon, a lot of other guys. It's the Marvel uh, Cinematic Universe of the Bible. And I find it fascinating that right after all these stories about Israel rising up triumphant against all their enemies, we get the book of Ruth, which is starring one of these enemies, a Moabite named Ruth. The story we hear today is often told where Ruth is selfless and humble, loyal to her mother-in-law, despite having no ties or reason to still be with her, right? It's told as this story of selfless love. And the problem here is that we are reading it as modern people, and we are not reading this as ancient Near Eastern people. It's very important to see what's happening in the story. There is a famine in Moab. Naomi hears that back in Israel, where she came from, there's food. So what would you do in that kind of a situation. You'd go back to where there is food. And I want you to imagine the desperation that Naomi must feel as a widow with two other mouths to feed in tow, also widows. There's no social service back then, right? So she has to take a huge chance and go back to the land that she abandoned years ago, hoping that some relative somewhere will forgive her for walking out on her country and actually share resources with her, a poor widow, so that she can eat. Now the fact that she has two foreigners with her will probably not help her case. Then as now, immigration was a fraught issue. So she is partly out she is partly out of her needs and also wanting what's best for her daughters-in-law. She's saying, "Go back home. I want to be able to get food and I don't think you guys are going to have a shot." Right? And the sad fact of life is until relatively recently in our history, for most women life could be pretty brutal unless you had a man to take care of you. 
So this is coming out of necessity for Naomi and a little bit of compassion, right? I don't know if I'll be able to feed you, but if you go home and with, with your own family, you'll be okay. And so Orpah and Ruth kind of have a choice to make. Orpah, one of the daughters-in-law, takes her chances and goes back home, right? Things are bad back there, but maybe I will be able to find some relatives that will help me. Right? But Ruth won't go back home because Ruth is desperate. Ruth does not want to go back into a land with no food as a widow. Right? She wants to take her chances and be a widow in a land with food rather than be a widow in a land with no food. So this is not just a story of Ruth being nice to her mother-in-law, which I know for many of us seems like such a big and grand thing to do, right? Ruth is begging to go with Naomi so that she will not starve. Ruth is desperate. These words are not words of affirmation or friendship. These are the words of a desperate and starving woman hoping for a better life. Ruth is a migrant, and Naomi has a green card. Uh, this is not to say that Ruth is not faithful. Ruth pledges not just to journey with Naomi, but to follow her to the end. Not knowing what will happen, Ruth clings to Naomi and vows to follow her all the way to the grave. And by the way, very interesting, this word clings to in Hebrew, dachava, uh, it shows up in a few places in the Old Testament. One of them being in Genesis 2, where it says a man will cling to his wife, right? And so Ruth says, look, we may not have a man around, but let's enter into this economic at that time agreement so that we can stick this out together. It's a marriage of sorts, right? And this is what faith is. Faith, I want you to think about what do you cling to when you're desperate? Uh, faith is maybe who you cling to uh, when, you're, when you're desperate. I, I was recently at a, a community uh, mental health education event, and uh, someone who had uh, a big career of helping first responders, he had us put, like, the people we're closest to, our goals before we die, our three treasured possessions. And he kept making us uh, cross out. Um, things that were least important to most important. And it always came down to the family were the things that we wouldn't cross out. And he said, wow, those of you who work yourselves to the bone, who are you hurting? And they're the most important things to you. Anyway, just thought that was interesting. Faith <laughs> is who you cling to when you're desperate. Faith is who you're stuck to. Faith is who you call on when there's nobody else left. Faith is what you hang on to whenever a storm rages around you. Luther uh, puts it in the catechism, faith is what you fear, love, and trust. And whatever you have faith in is what you hang your heart on. Whatever that is, that's your God. Faith is not about what, what you make your brain think. Faith is about what your heart rests on. And you see what your heart rests on most when you're desperate, when you're stuck in those times of famine in your own life. Maybe it's living and surviving on these crazy streets. 
Maybe it's finding something life-giving and meaningful to do now that you are retired. Maybe it's finding strength in the midst of a loved one's terminal diagnosis, even though on the inside you're falling apart. Maybe it's being in your 20s and being sick and tired of everyone asking you what you're going to do with your life. Whatever famine that you are in right now, wherever you're desperate, and whatever your heart clings to right there at your most awful rock bottom, tear and anxiety stained moments, that's what you have faith in. For Ruth, in that moment of desperation, And fleeing famine, Ruth had faith in Naomi. Ruth's faith had a face on it, the face of her mother-in-law. Her faith was the hope that Naomi would take her to Israel and give her a chance at having a new life, and at the very least, having a chance to eat. Nothing else matters to Ruth. Listen to her. Your people shall be my people. Your God shall be my God, right? She's not converting the way we understand it in our modern world. She's not trading the Moabite gods for the Israelite God because she's decided that Yahweh is better and that Yahweh needs to be her personal savior or that there, Thomas Aquinas gave these beautiful five proofs to show that Yahweh is more believable than the Moabite God, right? She's following Yahweh because she is following Naomi. We simply don't meet God in a vacuum, brothers and sisters. But we encounter God because somebody told us about God. Even better, somebody showed us who God is. Right? Think about these people in your lives. The relatives that taught you to pray and sang hymns to you. The Sunday school teachers that opened to you the the stories and scriptures. The neighbor that was able to testify to you about the things that God had done in their lives. People who show you kindness when you feel and look and smell like you don't deserve it. Friends that console you and race to be by you when you're in trouble. That first safe person that you were able to come out to. Pastors who proclaim the word of forgiveness and feed you holy food. Man, I can just keep going on and on about all the faces that God has attached to your faith. How would we ever meet God or have faith in God unless God showed up in this way to us through each other constantly, every single day? For me, I got a wonderful reminder of this when a friend from seminary called me and we talked a little bit about theology and what we learned in seminary and how it's wildly ineffective for what we have to deal with day to day. And I was instantly transported to those late night theology conversations at Bachman Hall that I love and miss so much. See, God's not hiding behind logic problems and math puzzles, right? God's not, you know, trying to run the country and tell people how to live. God's giving us faith by putting a face on it. God gives us faith by all the faces gathered here, and God will give you more faith through the people that you'll meet out of there, even the same way I was able to, as a pastor, profoundly learn from an agnostic. And for that man so many years ago, Faith was starting to emerge in his heart, and I don't know where it went. But because of the face that he was searching for, 
I think there was plenty of faith there. It was ignited by the truth that though his father may have died, his love for his father did not. And desperate like Ruth, that young man reached out begging for some kind of connection to his father. That young man, I think, had faith because he was looking to hang on to something with a face on it. And so as we ponder this, as we reflect on this in the week as we leave here, I don't want you to ever forget about the most important face that is put on our faith, and it is one that is twisted in agony on a cross. That faith is there clinging to us, not in our best moments, not at all those times we're on a spiritual or personal high or we made some more justice or we're glad that everything is right in the world. Instead, Jesus clings to that cross because when he does that, he is clinging to us in our times of famine, in our times of desperation, in our times of heartbreak, in our times of grief, and for many people across this world in their times of want. And what Jesus says there on that cross is where you go, I will go. And where you die, I will die. Same thing Ruth said. That's his promise to you. And that's the faith that gives us faith. That's the face that gives us faith. It's a tongue twister. Not the face that we cling to but the face of the crucified and risen one who always clings to us. Amen.